U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I'm Dale, and my XO over there hiding in the corner is Steven. Shh, Captain. Don't tell them I'm here. We might be boarded. Steven, you need to come here. You need to listen to these atrocities. I know you don't want to hear this, but it is important that people know this so they don't do it again. I know you're right, but it's really depressing to hear. Just let me get some comfort food. Oh, good. Navy beans, very, very spicy hot sauce, and coffee. Yeah, those are Navy beans. I know what I'm in for. So, we have the last of the Seminole Wars, and if we have time, and you're not curled up into a ball crying, we're also going to grab the GNC anti-piracy operations. Well, that, that sounds a little more fun and less depressing. All right, well, let's see if you're kind of tonic after this or not. Let's cast off. Let's get underway. So, we had ended with the Second War. So, at this point, peace has come to Florida. The natives were mostly staying on the reservation that was established for them. And groups of men would visit Tampa to trade. Now, though, squatters were moving closer and closer to the reservation. Again? Yeah. So, President James Polk establishes a 20-mile-wide buffer zone around the reservation in 1845, making it so no land could be claimed within this buffer zone. So, I mean, they say buffer zone, but it's a neutral zone. Right. So no one could claim land, no titles would be issued for that land, and the U.S. Marshal would go into the buffer zone and remove squatters. So this is a good thing that uh, the president is doing. So in 1845, a guy named Thomas P. Kennedy, he operated a store at Fort Brooke. He converted his fishing station on Pine Island into a trading post for the Native Americans. This post did not do good because the white people who sold whiskey to the Indians told them that they would be seized and sent west if they went to Kennedy's store. But dang nabbit. I'm assuming like these were just claims they said to keep them away from getting, in their opinion, too close to white settlements. Yeah. So, of course, this is going to start with tensions. Now, the authorities in Florida, they continue to press for removal of all the Indians from Florida. And the Indians, for their part, try to limit their contacts with the white population as much as they possibly could. Now, in 1846, a Captain John T. Sprague was placed in charge of Indian affairs. For Florida or for the entire country? For Florida. Okay. Now, the chiefs gave him a lot of difficulty in getting a meeting set up 
and put in place. They were very distrustful of the army because of seizing chiefs while under a flag of truce. Yeah, taking local leaders hostage, prisoner, whatever term you want to use, while showing up for what's supposed to be a talk, kind of uh, understandable that they really don't want to talk with us anymore. Yeah. So it took about a year for him to manage to meet with all of them. And he did this while investigating a report of a raid on a farm. He then reported that the Indians consisted of about 120 warriors. And he estimated that there were about 100 women and 140 children. Across the entire reservation or in this one tribe? In Florida. Whoa. Uh, crap. Either he's very bad at noticing folks, or we were much, much more thorough in eliminating the indigenous folks there, and that's, yeah, depressing. Eliminating, forcefully ejecting, yeah. So, the trading post on Pine Island, it was burned down in 1848. And in 49, Thomas Kennedy got himself a new partner named John Darling. They were given permission to open a trading post on what is now called Payne's Creek, which is on the Peace River. There was one band of Indians that were living outside the reservation in 49. These guys were considered outsiders. It consisted of about 20 warriors which were under the leadership of Chipko. The tribes that were represented here were Muskogees, Mikasukis, Seminoles, Creek, and Yuchi. So on July 12th of 1849, four Indians from this band attacked a farm on the Indian River just north of Fort Pierce. They ended up killing a man wounding a second man and a woman. So, when the news of this raid reached the white folk, oh no, most of the population of the East Coast flee to St. Augustine. They were that terrified of 120 warriors when they probably outnumbered them 10 to 1? Yes. And it's not 120, it's 20. I'm sorry, my brain just checked out because I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So five days later, the four that attacked the farm and a fifth warrior attacked the Darling and Kennedy store. Two workers, which included Captain Payne, were killed. And another worker and his wife were wounded while they were trying to escort their child into hiding. Now, believe it or not, the U.S. Army was not prepared to engage the Indians. They didn't have very many men stationed in Florida anymore, and they had no means whatsoever to move them quickly where they could protect the white settlers and capture these rogue, quote-unquote, rogue Indians. 
So I assume uh, Florida militia started mustering to take care of this. Actually, the War Department does. They start building up their forces again in Florida. They place a major general, David E. Twiggs, in command. And also the state did call up two companies of mounted volunteers to guard the white settlements. Now, Captain John Casey was in charge of trying to get the rest of these Indians to move west. And he arranged a meeting between General Twiggs and a number of the Indian leaders over there in Charlotte Harbor. So during this meeting, Billy Bowlegs promised, with the approval of all the other leaders, that they would deliver the five warriors that carried out these attacks would be delivered to them in 30 days. That, that, so that's reasonable. Pretty much he's saying, hey, we did not call for or organize these attacks. This was five of our guys just going off on their own, raising hell. We didn't want this. You don't want this. Let us get them. They're yours. Exactly. So October 18th comes around and Bowlegs was able to deliver three of the men to Twigs. Along with the severed hand of one of the others because he had been killed while trying to escape. The fifth man was originally captured, but he escaped during transport. Oh, okay, so one's still at large, but, I mean, this is the mid-1800s, so that's pretty decent. That's a, that's a pretty good win. Yeah, yeah, you know, 30 days. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the reservation was like 4 million square miles. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's... Good work. So, when Bowlegs gives these three men to Gerald Twiggs... And the hand. Gerald Twiggs... And the hand. Gerald Twiggs tells the Indians that he has orders to remove them from Florida. But, Twig, come on, man. Yeah. So, the government will have three tactics to try to carry out this removal. The army in Florida was increased to 1,500 men. $100,000 was used for bribing Indians to move. And then a delegation of Seminole chiefs was brought from the Indian territory to negotiate with the other chiefs that were still in Florida. Eventually, a couple of these guys agreed to move his people west. And in February of 1850, 74 Indians boarded a ship and went to New Orleans. They were paid a total of almost $16,000 in bribes and compensation for the property that they left behind them. So, I mean, that's about 625k in today money. How many was the 70 you said? 74. That, I mean, that's not nothing, but that's the modern equivalent of pretty much telling someone to upend their life. And uh, here's enough money to buy a beater, down payment on uh, a place to rent, and a couple of weeks of groceries. You'll figure it out. Well, if they paid it to every single person. Yes, and that, that, that is assuming doubt. everybody got a fair cut. 
that is a little over $8,000 to each person in our money. Yeah, right. So, yeah, that's not even a beater. Oh, not my really. cars have gotten stupid expensive in the last year. Mm-hmm. So, there were a couple of instances that made relations after these incidents worse. What? White folks being absolute jerks to the native... Po- Harumph, I say, sir. Harumph. I just don't believe it. Yeah. Two Indians had gone to trade at the same time that another Indian and his band were surrendering and were captured and involuntarily shipped off to New Orleans. So some folks from a different community just happened to be in the area but because they had a somewhat similar hue to their skin, eh, you're part of that tribe now. Off you go. Yep. Yep. Then in March, the 7th Infantry were mounted and penetrated into the reservation. And because of this, the rest of the Indians that were still in contact with the negotiators broke off the contact. Yeah, you know, negotiating in good faith, no big deal. That's good. Let's reach a compromise. Let's find something everybody's happy with, or at the very least, we all feel like we equally got screwed over. Getting the military involved by entering your area, not exactly the best sign of good faith. No. So, the next month, Twiggs sent a report to Washington. And he says in this report that there was no hope of convincing any more Indians to move. Well, let's recap. You have, to quote one of the great villains of movie history, I have altered the deal. Pray I do not alter it any further. Three times at this point? I feel like three times. Minimal. Okay. You have blindly sided with white settlers on any dispute between white settlers and natives, even when there's no evidence to support the claims from the settlers. You have violated the agreements you set out with the natives even more times than you've altered it. I I think we're on the tenth time of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I think you exhausted the goodwill four or five times back. Oh, yeah, there's no goodwill now. I don't even know how they were able to keep taking it on the chin this long. Because, you know, these white folks there, they wouldn't have. I I was going to say, the settlers, like, a cow dies randomly from a disease. They probably would blame the native population for poisoning the, uh, you know, water well. Or, you know, doing something to the cow. So, in August... A orphan boy was living on a farm in north central Florida and was apparently, and this is a very big apparently, he was killed by Indians. So little orphan Timmy was living on a settler's farm and he was killed or passed away or something. And then the host family just said, oh, the natives did it. A lot of that happens all the time. Oh, my God. 
Lightning just struck my house. It's the Indian's fault. It's the same thing for the Salem witch trials. Anything that happened bad was a witch. Oh, at least that one we can blame a... A bad harvest of rye grain. Ergot rot. It's trippy. Yeah. So, eventually... Enough complaints about the death breached Washington. And this caused the Secretary of War to order the surrender of the Indians responsible for the child's murder. Or the president would hold the whole tribe responsible. Captain Casey was able to get word to Bowlegs and arranged a meeting with him in April. Now, Bowlegs, again, he promises to deliver the men responsible. Although, apparently, they were members of a different band and had no authority over these guys. But the other tribe does surrender three men as the possible killers. And they were arrested when they showed up to trade in Fort Myers. I was going to say another example of they are cooperating. They don't want hostilities. If one or two members of their community are going rogue and doing crap, they don't want that. Just let them do their thing. You've already screwed them over enough times. Now, once they were taken into custody, these guys protested their innocence, saying that their leader did not like them and that other men were the murderers. Okay. And Captain Casey believed these guys. However, they tried to escape from jail in Tampa. And when they were caught, they were chained up in their cell. Then they were later found hanging from the bars in their cell. And no further investigation went into it because, in the government's opinion, they were not United States citizens and did not require any further defense or investigation into it, I assume, right? One was still alive when they were found, but he was not cut down until the next day after he had died. What? Yep. <laughs> they came in, said, oh, one's still alive. Let's check back in the morning. My brain hurts. Now, apparently, the constable who chained these three men into the cell was the father-in-law of a brother of one of the men killed at the Kennedy and Darling store that happened in the previous year. And let me guess, he lived a long and happy, consequence-free life. Well... They do not have his name, so I cannot confirm or deny that. I mean, if they don't have his name, that probably means that no uh, charges were ever filed or investigation performed. We can only hope that he was killed later. So, in 1851, General Luther Blake was appointed by the Secretary of the Interior to move these Indians west. He had been successful from other relocations in Georgia, so he was apparently up for the job of removing the remnants of these tribes. He was given funding to pay every adult male $800 and every woman and child 450 I mean, $800 per guy is 
about 31k now, so that's not an unreasonable amount for compensation. And then, like, let's just assume, I mean, 450, multiply that by two. Now you're, you're looking at about 35k. And that's at least semi-reasonable for compensation. Yeah, you could probably establish yourself somewhere else pretty easily. Yeah, you, you can you can start a new life. It wouldn't be a lavish life, but you could live comfortably off that while you get situated. So, the general, he goes to Indian Territory to find interpreters and then goes back to Florida in 1852. He traveled to meet with the leaders, and in July he had found 16 tribe members to send west. So he finds Billy Bowlegs, and Billy Bowlegs says, no, I want to stay. So he takes Bowlegs and a number of other, a number of the other chiefs to Washington. And President Millard Fillmore presents Bowlegs with a medal. After doing this, he and three other chiefs were persuaded to sign an agreement promising to leave Florida. They whined and dined him and made him feel important. I'm just surprised that uh, it got escalated all the way to a meeting with the President of the United States. Like, it's just unexpected. Yeah, they'll be, they're trying to move them peacefully, at least up until this point. So, when the chiefs were returned to Florida, the chiefs said... No, we didn't sign any agreement. And then Blake was fired. And Captain Casey was put back in charge. In January of 51, the Florida legislator created a new position. Commander of the Florida Militia. And Governor Thomas Brown appoints Benjamin Hopkins into that position. So, over the next couple of years, the... Militia pursued these tribes that were outside of the reservation boundaries. They capture one man and a couple women and 140 hogs. One elder woman commits suicide while being held by this militia. So, over a few years, all this militia can claim is... We got the bacon, we got grandma, and we got that dude. You know the dude. We got him. And they spent $40,000 doing it. So, folks, uh, that bacon, while it is a hefty amount of bacon, that bacon cost about one and a half million dollars. And I doubt those were prize-winning pigs. Military spending at its finest. So that's about... 3,600 per pig. That's an expensive pig. Yeah, I, I think the going rate for pigs nowadays, it depends on how old and how big they are when you buy them, but I think you can get a pig nowadays for under 150 if they're young enough. Yeah. So, you know, spending half a million dollars. A one and a half. Florida. Or a one and a half million? One, yeah, 1.5. Oh, I thought you said half a oh, million. Oh, did those pigs just break 10K? Oh, I thought that number seemed low, but I took you at your word. 
So that makes them 11,000 per pig. Oh, good Lord. Wow. Okay. So spending $11,000 per pig, the state decides to pressure the federal government to take action. Now, Captain Casey continues to try to persuade the natives to move west. And, of course, he's not being successful. So he sends Billy Bowlegs and other chiefs to Washington again. But these guys were like, no, we're not moving. So in August 1854, Secretary of War Jefferson Davis starts a program to force the natives into a final conflict. This included a trade embargo, a survey and sale of the land in southern Florida to European-American settlers, and a stronger army presence to protect these new settlers. Now, he does say that if they do not agree to leave the army is going to use force. So, in late 1855, the natives decided that it is time to strike back because of all the pressure that is being put on them. I mean, this has been going on and off for, at this point, 40 years, with the last 20 being a lot of bad faith negotiations on the part of the United States government, I'm surprised it took this long. Yeah, I am I am too. So, on December 7th of 1855, First Lieutenant George Hartsuff, who had previously led patrols into the reservation, he leaves Fort Myers with 10 men and two wagons. Now they find no um, they find no natives, but they do find cornfields and three deserted villages, which included Billy Bowleg's village. How do they know it was his village? He's a major chief. They know where they live. Fair enough, I suppose. I, I just assumed they found some personal effect and like, ah, oh, yeah, Billy Bowleg's lucky whatever. Well, yeah, there might have been some looting. Where the army goes, the army loots. So, on the evening of December 19th, Hartsuff tells his men that, well, we're going to be going back to Fort Myers tomorrow. So his men start loading their wagons and settling their horses. So the next morning, 40 warriors, led by Billy Bowlegs himself, attacks the camp. Correct me if I'm wrong, weren't there only 20 warriors and then five of them, well, four, three captured, one dead, one MIA? Who the heck dropped the ball in that survey? That was the Outsiders. That was the band that was living outside of the reservation. Ah, gotcha. So, immediately several soldiers go down, shot, which included Lieutenant Hartstuff. Now, he was able to hide himself to try to not be murdered. So the native, the native warriors, they end up killing four men and scalping them. They killed the wagon mules, looted and burned the wagons 
and, of course, took the horses. Seven of the men, uh, four of them wounded, were able to return to Fort Myers. So when news of the attack reaches Tampa, the elected officials, they name militia officers and organize companies of men. These newly formed militia marched to the Peace River Valley, recruiting more men on the way and manning some of the abandoned forts along the river. Governor James Brougham starts organizing volunteer companies. And since he had limited funds because he just spent $11,000 per pig, <laughs> he tried to have the army accept these volunteers. So the Secretary of War, Jefferson Davies, accepts two infantry companies and three mounted companies, about 260 men. The governor kept another 400 men mobilized under state control. So the state troops and the army troops had been partially armed and supplied by private donors. General Jesse Carter is appointed as special agent without any military rank to lead the state troops. Carter takes half of the troops and has them start growing crops. This left about 200 men available to patrol. January 6th, 1856. A couple of men were gathering contai south of the Miami River and were killed. The settlers, of course, promptly flee to Fort Dallas. About 20 natives under Tustungi attacks a woodcutting patrol outside of Fort Danod, killing five of the six men. And this happened despite the militia units. They killed a man and burned his house in Sarasota on March 31st. And they attempted to attack Brandon Castle, which was the plantation home of Dr. Joseph Braden. The castle was too strong for them, though. But they did steal seven slaves and three mules. Now, when Native Americans uh, took uh, slaves, did they integrate them into the tribe? Did they consider them property the same way that uh, slaveholders did? Or do we not really know the details of how that worked? I'm sure it varied from tribe to tribe, person to person. Yeah, it varied from tribe to tribe, person to person. Some tribes did take slaves themselves. Usually they would be defeated warriors of that and that nature. Um, there's lots of stories in the Old West about tribes taking women and keeping them. And very few of them ever made it back to tell a story. It just depended on the situation mm. and who was in charge. So they had these prisoners, the mules. They ended up having to move slow, of course, because you're dragging seven people with you and a couple of ornery, ornery mules. Yeah. So they stop at Big Charlie Creek. And they started eating barbecue from a cow that they found and slaughtered. 
That's when the militia catches up with them. Oh, they made the old tentacle blunder of uh, throwing Bessie over the Barbie. Yeah. The militiamen killed two of the natives and recaptured the slaves and mules. One of the scalps from the natives was taken and displayed in Tampa. The other scalp was displayed in Manatee. So in April, army and militiamen patrolled around and patrolled inside the reservation. But they didn't really have any contact with the natives. One battle was fought for six hours near Bowlegs Town in April, and four regular army men were killed and three wounded before the natives withdraw. Now the natives, they continue to carry out small raids around the state. One of these was May 14th, 1856, when 15 of these guys attacked a farmhouse of Captain Robert Bradley, killing two of his children. Oh, no. Now, Bradley did kill one of these natives, but still children. Right. Nothing fuels the cycle of now, violence like uh, child killing. Yeah. Now, they think Bradley was targeted because he had killed, they had killed Tiger Tail's which was a chief, killed his brother during the Second Seminole War. Now, three days later, some more natives attacked a wagon train in Central Florida. They end up killing three men. Now, after this, mail and stagecoach service in and out of Tampa was suspended. Yeah, it's kind of becoming an active war zone. That makes sense. June 14th. The natives attack a farm near Fort Made. Now, all of the people in the farm made it safely into the house and were able to hold out against the natives. The gunfire from the settlers shooting at the natives, and probably the natives shooting at the settlers, was heard at the fort, and seven militiamen responded. Three of these guys were killed, and two were wounded. So... They went back for more militiamen. Now, they came out there and they started to pursue the natives, then retreated when their powder got wet from rain. Mm. So that brings us to June 16th. 20 militiamen surprise a group of natives along the Peace River. They killed some of them. When the militiamen withdrew, they had two dead and three wounded. Now, they claim to have killed 20 of the natives. Hey guys, I think you're giving yourself a little too much credit. Just a tad. Yeah, because the natives say, no, you killed four and wounded two. I, I know this is the 1850s. I know schooling isn't what it is nowadays, but come on. You guys... Most of you still have five fingers per hand. You can get that high. Now, yeah. <laughs> now, unfortunately, one of the natives that were killed was Tuscan G. He was one of the only chiefs that were actively leading attacks. Mm, so that means that the uh, 
natives that were putting up a resistance just lost one of their most capable leaders for organizing resistance. Yep. Now, of course, at this time, the citizens of Florida, Floridians, they, of course, are now disheartened with militia. They started filing complaints that they were pretending to patrol for a day and two, a day or two, and then they would just go home and work their fields. <laughs> so they're complaining that they're playing at being soldier just to boost their ego and feel like they're, you know, badass McGee, Indian hunter. No, not only that, but they were also complaining that they were not doing anything. They were drunk all the time, and they were stealing stuff. Bravo, Florida. Bravo. They are also reporting that the officers are not submitting their paperwork. Guys, that's literally your job. But most importantly, the biggest complaint of all was that the militia is failing to prevent attacks. Yeah, I would say it is. So in September of 1856, Brigadier General William S. Harney returns to Florida and takes command of the troops. Now he remembers all the lessons he learned from the Second War and sets up a system of forts across Florida and sends patrols deep into native territory. His plan was to confine the natives to the Big Cypress Swamp and the Everglades because he believed that they would be unable to live there during the wet season. So starve them out. Yeah, this is a... He's attempting to set up a... Uh, whatchamacallit? Siege? A siege, yes. He thought that he would be able to catch Indians as they left the swamp trying to find dry land to farm. So part of his plan involved using boats to reach the islands and other dry spots in the, in the swamps. Now, before he did all this, he did make one more attempt to negotiate with the natives. Dude, no! What's the point? You keep going back on this stuff. Why would you even think they'd listen to you? Assuming they're even cool with meeting. Yeah, they... he couldn't even make contact. I wonder why. It truly is a mystery. Right. So, early in January of 1857, he orders his troops to start hunting the Indians. I'm not gonna like how this goes, am I? Well, he did not show very many results by the time that he and the 5th Infantry ended up being transferred to Kansas to aid in the uprising there in April. Hmm. So they send Colonel Gustus Loomis to command the troops in Florida. But since the 5th Infantry leaves... That leaves him with 10 companies of the 4th Artillery, which was then reduced to just four companies. So he organizes volunteers into boat companies, which were given metal alligator boats that had been built 
specifically for use in the Big Cypress Swamp and Everglades. What's an alligator boat? Well, these things were 30 feet long, pointed at both ends, and they drew about two to three feet of water. And they could carry up to 16 men into the swamps. So a big metal canoe. Yep. Okay. Now, these boat companies were actually successful in a lot of ways. They were able to capture a lot of Indians. Although they were primarily women and children. So that's the militia. The regular army, they really didn't do very good. Some of the officers saw that the natives were easily avoiding the army patrols. They blamed that most of the enlisted men were recent immigrants and had no skills in woodcraft. While that is a fair complaint, I also think it might just come down to the army probably wasn't familiar with the local territory the same way the militia was. Yeah. And this is in the day and age where the army loves to, you know, march in formation and make a lot of noise in the process of moving around. Lots of clinking bits on their belts. Yep. So this brings us to 1857. Ten of the militia companies were taken into the army. This totaled about 800 men. This happens in September. In November, these troops, they capture 18 women and children from Billy Bolake's band. The troops also found and destroyed a number of their towns and fields of crops. Then they move into the Big Cypress Swamp on New Year's Day. They destroy the towns and fields that they find. So the army sends a emissary into Indian territory to try to contact Bowlegs. Now, to their credit, the rest of the troops did stand down while the delegation tries to contact Bowlegs. All right. That's good to hear, but I'm hearing a giant but. They did contact him. Okay. So the previous year, the Seminoles had finally been given their own reservation in Indian territory, separate from the Creeks. So they're not going to bunch them all together anymore, saying, oh, you're, you're all red-skinned, you're all Creeks. Okay. And cash payment of $500 to each warrior and $100 to each woman were promised. Oh, that's not a lot. That's less than the 800 that they had promised them earlier. Much less. Uh, that's that's a pittance. Maybe half a pittance. Yeah. So on March 15th, Boleg and Assassin War, their bands accepted the offer and agreed to go west. And May 4th, 163 were shipped to New Orleans, which caused Colonel Loomis to declare the war to be over on May 8th of 1858. So when he declares that the war is over, the government believes that only about 100 natives were left in Florida. In December, the U.S. recruited two bands, totaling 75 people, who agreed to be removed west, and they were shipped out 
in February of 59. This did not get rid of the rest of them because there were still some. There was Sam Jones's band in southeast Florida near Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Chipko's band was north of Lake Okeechobee, although the army and militia, they had no idea where. And there were, of course, individual families scattered across the wetlands of South Florida. Right. A lot harder to track down, you know, less than a dozen folks living off the land and never settling down in a permanent residence than it is tracking down a few hundred that have a semi-permanent residence. Now, the war was officially over and the remaining native population stayed quiet. So the government sends the militia home and reassigns the regular army. All of the forts were decommissioned and stripped by settlers because they wanted that material. And in 1862, the state contacts Sam Jones and promises aid to try to keep the natives neutral in the Civil War. Although the state did not follow through on its promises, big surprise, big surprise, the native population was not interested in fighting yet one more war. Yeah, that's a... Wait, 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 hold up, guys. You you want us to fight for you against your government, the government that helped you, you know, keep us under your boot and heel, and we're just supposed to take you at your word that you won't screw us over when you're kind of the cause of all the crap that we've had to deal with? Settle it yourself. Mm-hmm. So in 1868, the Florida Constitution was developed by the Republican-dominated legislator and gave the Native Americans a seat in the House and one seat in the Senate. The Natives pretty much flipped them the bird and they never filled that seat. Those seats. Was that like a one-time offer and then they just said, screw it? Or is that like, to this day, there is still a empty seat for the native population. Well, I mean, they redid the Constitution in 1885. Probably removing those seats in the process. When the, yeah, when the Democrats became the dominant power, they removed the seats and established barriers to voter registration and electoral practices, which essentially disfranchised most blacks and minorities. And this situation lasted until the mid-1960s. All right, guys, well, the uh, XO is curled up in the corner right now, sucking on his thumb. So I think that's where we're going to end it for today. We have thoroughly broken Stephen. Oh, history sucks, history sucks, history sucks, history sucks. Oh, why can't people be nice? Why can't people be nice? Why can't people be nice? Well, if you want to tell Stephen why people are not nice, email us at usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at usnhistorypod. Fair winds and following seas. Stephen, we're going to get you some treatment. Hey, Captain, I think the beans and the hot sauce and the coffee grounds I mixed all in there. 
I think it's run through my system now. I will be back soon. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing. Departing.